Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 7th, 2018, and my guest is journalist and author Sebastian Younger. He's the author of The Perfect Storm, Fire, A Death in Belmont, War. He is a contributing editor of Vanity Fair and special correspondent at ABC News. He has covered major international news stories around the world and has received both the National Magazine Award and a Peabody Award. His latest book from 2016 is Tribe on Homecoming and Belonging, which is the subject of today's conversation. Sebastian, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you very much. Now, it's fitting. This is probably going to be the last episode of 2018. It might end up being the first one of 2019. We'll see. But I took a rough look and counted. I probably read 25 or 26 books this year for Econ Talk. And as you may have noticed, many of them and many of my guests have been a little different than in years past, going outside of economics, at least narrowly defined. Tribe is a pretty powerful way to end this year. It's a very short book. It's 136 pages, and it's, the print's pretty big, and the margins are pretty large also. Um, but it it really is uh, an extraordinary book, and I, I recommend it to, to everybody. Part of me just wants to read the book out loud. Uh, that wouldn't <laughs> be so interesting. But you'll see why, because it, it brings together many, many themes that we've been talking about and I've been thinking about this year as part of Econ Talk, so let's get to it. Sebastian, your book starts with a crazy bit of anthropology. Uh, when America was settled by white Europeans in the 17th century, going forward into the 19th century, a lot of um, folks found the life of American Indians appealing and for various reasons found themselves in American Indian society and tribes uh, and decided to stay there and not go back to so-called civilization but very few, if any, American Indians found civilization appealing. Describe that phenomenon and what you learned from it. Yeah, I mean, it really rankled a, a um, conservative Christian society that the what they called the heathens in the wilderness, sort of Satan's territory. Um, the, the, the heathen society seemed to be more appealing to young people from from Christian culture. Uh, than their own culture was, and 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 we know that because people like Benjamin Franklin and other writers and thinkers of the time would comment on it with some real consternation. Um, why is it? Uh, basically, they'd ask, "Why is it that our young people keep abs- absconding from the settlements along the frontier and running off to join the savages and as they called them?" And but the other, the reverse, never happens. And. But more interestingly, in some ways, even people who are captured along the frontier, my, my family um, dates back, one line of it dates back to the Pennsylvania frontier, and their their little cabin in the woods was attacked by Indians, and the two teenage boys were killed on their doorstep. Uh, the mother got away with a four-year-old and an infant, um, escaped into a cornfield. So my family is also from that era and that, that, that kind of situation. Um, often on these Indian raids, what they were doing was trying to get uh, captives to replace casualties of war. So the, the the tribal societies were constantly looking for young people, particularly young women, to sort of replenish their ranks. And what's really interesting 
is that when these people are, are, are captured, often as teenagers, boys and girls both, within a year or so, if they're not recaptured, within a year or so, they're often um, so established in their adopted society, their adopted tribe, that they don't want to be repatriated back to white society, to European society. They want to stay with their tribe, the people that captured them, right, and often killed the rest of their family. Uh, and that um, that was really disturbing to thinkers at the time. And one of the explanations, I think it was Benjamin Franklin who put this forward, one of the explanations was that the basic egalitarian nature of tribal society was what was appealing. Of course, European society is not at all egalitarian. And, of course, we have to not just talk about the egalitarian nature. It was dramatically poor, even then, even in the, I would say, late 1700s, early 1800s, the lifestyle of Americans was, I think, my understanding of it is it was better than many European standard of living, but it was certainly way above in terms of material well-being, the standard of living of, of the American Indian, and yet uh, they prefer it. Yeah, I mean, the, the truth is the material wealth doesn't does not necessarily lead to happiness, doesn't lead to a sense of living a meaningful life. Um, people want autonomy, they want respect, and they want good relations with their community. I mean, those things impart an incredible sense of well-being. And if you're living in a I mean, of course, not all the native tribes were sort of at the hunter-gatherer level, but they were pre, um, um, sort of pre-technology in the sense that we mean it. I mean, there was they had they, they had no metalwork, um, they had very very limited agriculture. They lived generally in close knit small communities uh, where everyone depended on each other, um, and there were no because there was no real accumulation of wealth. There were not hierarchical rankings in society. Um, there was no one who there was no one who was more. Um, who had more authority than anyone else? Who could impose their will? Uh, leadership was uh, wasn't imposed. It was it was uh, it was won by the leader, and that that really makes people feel good. You also talk about. I found this really thought provoking. This one brief set of remarks you make at the end of the introduction of the book. Um, you say humans don't mind hardship. In fact, they thrive on it. What they mind is not feeling necessary. Modern society has perfected the art of making people not feel necessary. And certainly, end of quote, and certainly in that, um, quote, primitive society, less developed society, everybody was pretty necessary. Yeah. yeah, and you can see that in modern Western societies that experience a, a crisis, a catastrophe. All of a sudden, uh, the hurricane, the tornado, the 9-11 attack, well, whatever it may be, a, a, a few things almost always seem to happen. Um, people very, very quickly come together and share their resources. Um, they um, offer cooperation and help to the group. They depend on the group for their own survival. Um, and and they, they, they start very instinctively, they start putting other people first. They, they, they stop thinking about themselves. And there's a very good evolutionary reason for that. Um, humans are a social... There's, we're social primates. Uh, humans do not survive alone in nature. They die. They die almost immediately. The reason we survive and the reason, reason in fact, we thrive is because we work in groups where the individual contributes to the, to the um, common good and the group ensures the safety of the individual. And that basic reciprocal arrangement has allowed humans to thrive for hundreds of thousands of years. 
So in a crisis, whatever the crisis may be, in a crisis, and I would argue that hunter, the hunter-gatherer economy is an ongoing low-level crisis of survival. In a crisis, um, people, and I saw this, I've seen this in combat with soldiers, people put others first because their survival depends on the goodwill of others. There is no survival without the group. And so all of a sudden, everyone is thinking in group terms. And you can see that in um, crisis after crisis in this country, 9-11 in New York, white, black, rich, poor, all those distinctions fell away in Manhattan right after 9-11. As a result, the suicide rate went down after 9-11. The violent crime rate went down. People really stuck together and they stopped making those ghastly distinctions of 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 affluence and race that that um, are such a curse on on our society today. For some reason, I'm reminded of Les Mis, uh, <laughs> both the book and the musical. The character, the characters of the Thernadiers, who who's the he's the master of the house in that song, the comic relief of that. But he's also the the nasty, grasping. Um, person who always looks for a chance to exploit right. an opportunity. Uh, and we don't think of that, of him as clever. <laughs> right. he, he's despicable. And it's just interesting to me how uh, those norms that you're talking about of, of group, putting the group first, and I would add, for after reading your book, you didn't mention it, but uh, putting your, taking a risk, physical risks to enhance the group's security or the right. safety of individual members – uh, which economists might call irrational uh, if they are bad at defining what rational really is. And I think that's a big problem for a profession. Uh, you know, acting in a self-interested way is often equated with rationality. And there are many times in life, as I like to point out, that doing what's self-interested is wrong. It, it, it might be better for you in the short run. It might even be better for you in the long run. But it's immoral in certain right. settings, not all, many not. But I think the ability to recognize that, especially in a crisis, and do what's, quote, right, is um, – it's deeply fulfilling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's two – in evolutionary terms, two things going on here. Um, it clearly is adaptive to think in group terms because your survival depends on the group. And the worse the circumstances, the more your survival depends on the group. And as a result, the more pro-social the behaviors are. Um, the, the, better, the worse p- things are, the better people act. But there's another adaptive response, which is self-interest. Okay, so if things are okay, if the you know if the if the enemy is not attacking, if there's no drought, if there's plenty of food, if everything is fine, then in evolutionary terms, it's adaptive. Your need for the group subsides a little bit, and it's adaptive to attend to your own interests, your own needs. Um, and all of a sudden, you've invented the bow and arrow. You know, all of a sudden, you've invented the iPhone. Whatever. I mean that. That having the bandwidth and the safety and the space for people to sort of drill deep down into an idea, a religious idea, a philosophical idea, a technological idea, clearly also benefits the human race. So what you have in our species is this constant toggling back and forth between group interest, selflessness, and individual interest. And individual autonomy, and so when 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 things are bad, you're way better off investing in the group and forgetting about yourself. When things are good, in some ways, you're better off spending that time investing in yourself. Uh, and then it toggles back again when things get bad. And so I, I think in this in modern society, in, in a traditional small scale tribal society, in the in the natural world, 
that toggling back and forth happened continually. There was a dynamic tension between the two that had people winding up more or less in the, in, in the middle. The problem with modern society is that we have, for most of the time, for most people, solved the direct physical threats to our sur- survival. So what you have is people, and, and again, it's adaptive. We're wired for this, attending their, to their own needs and interests, but, not, but almost never getting drag, dragged back into the sort of idea of group concern that is part of our human heritage. And the irony is that when people are part of a group and doing something essential to a group, it gives an incredible sense of well-being. And so what we're losing, we have this great autonomy from the group and from the needs of survival, and there's a lot, that has a lot to say for it. But, um, but what we lose is this basic human experience of, wow, I'm needed, and I would do anything for these people. These are my people. I would do anything for them. That, ironically, that feels very, very good. And when you deprive people of the chance and the necessity of acting heroically and generously for other people, you deprive them of a fundamental uh, part of what it means to be human, what it means to have a meaningful life, and and, and a fundamental way of feeling content and happy in, in your in your life. Yeah, I, I phrase it as um, we have a longing to belong, and you know that it's adaptive in in crisis. Obviously, that that longing, but. It's still there even when there's not a crisis, and we yeah. we ignore that, I think, at our peril. We'll talk later about the political implications of this because I think there are quite a few. But uh, so it you know it's not just that in crisis people get along better. They have more meaningful lives, which is ironic. I, I heard this great proverb recently. I'm not going to do it well in English. It's Chinese, evidently. No food, one problem. Lots of food, many problems. And oh, that's, that's great. our that's our Western dilemma. I think to some extent we have lots of problems. That's the good news. Right. We don't have one problem. When you have one problem and it's food, it's life's very hard. But it has a, uh, a vividness. Uh, crisis and challenge and hardship have a, bring a vividness that uh, that we've lost. And, and of course, we seek it in many ways outside of our normal schedule of life because we miss it. Oh, absolutely. And you can see that sort of group grouping behavior in sports fans and in neighborhood committees, neighborhood watch groups, you know, whatever. I mean, people instinctively do it all the time. In fact, they long for it. And, you know, if you go into a coffee, coffee shop, the seats are not pointed towards the wall. It's where you can have your privacy. They're all pointed towards the, the middle because people go out partly to encounter other people and have even a fleeting sense of, oh, okay, we're here right now. I don't know who these people are, but we're all having coffee in the same place and maybe I'll meet someone nice, you know, whatever, like that's just wired into us. And I, you know, I got to say like the most connected and um, part of a group that I've ever felt was in the most dangerous circumstances I've ever been in, which was in in combat, in war. I I was a, I wasn't a soldier. I was a journalist and I was with a, an American platoon of um, combat infantry in a, a remote outpost in Eastern Afghanistan I call Restrepo, and um, the the closeness, both emotional and physical, uh, in that little outpost, it was, you know, 20, 20 odd men, and, uh, and we were in combat constantly. Um, you were never with, you were never further than a few feet from another human being, ever, right? So it was this wonderful feeling of closeness and belonging and being needed and needing and all that stuff, I mean, all that good human stuff. But 
one thing I longed for in those circumstances was just to be alone for a while. Like, just give me half an hour, guys. <laughs> but of course, to be alone in that environment means you are in mortal danger. So that's not, you just can't go for a nice walk up the mountainside. Yeah, I wanna, we want to be careful not to romanticize some of the nature's, nature primitive crisis situations. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we had Ron, Ron Abramitsky on the program talking about kibbutz life. And kibbutz life in its heyday, less so now, it's not its heyday, and most of the kibbutzim that um, they were purely egalitarian have stopped doing that. Uh-huh. Uh, there are a few left. They tend to be religious uh, rather than the secular early right. days of the kibbutz movement. Uh, but I think it was Ron's grandmother who said after she left the kibbutz, when people would say, "Where are you going?" Which is a modern life, she'd say, "I'm none of your business. I got, I, I got. I'm not. I stopped telling people that a long yeah, time right, ago." Right. Uh, and, yeah. and there is an oppressiveness. The other example I would suggest is, you know, small town life yeah. has that feeling of connection. Um, the movie "It's a Wonderful Life" uh, captures that beautifully. Most of us don't want to live there or struggle to want to live right. there, and um, small town life can be uh, oppressive. Uh, people are knowing your business. You don't have privacy. Yeah. Yeah, it can be very hard for certain types of people and hard for lots of types of right. people. Right. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, and let's not romanticize group group life. My, my point is that as a species, as, a, as social primates, our evolutionary heritage is that we evolved to live in small groups of 30, 40 individuals, exactly what chimpanzees, the size of a chimpanzee troop, by the way, um, and that we are clearly adapted to feel at our most safe and, and and arguably most meaningful and content in, in the close proximity of others. That doesn't mean there isn't stresses that come with that. Of course there are. Uh, I would argue that's, that there is even greater stresses that come with being isolated. And we, we, we know that, this, that as affluence rises in a society, uh, the suicide rate tends to go up. The depression rate tends to go up. PTSD rates tend, tend to go up. Uh, child abuse rates tend to go up. Addiction rates tend to go up. I and mean, all these things that are bedeviling America right now, um, they, they all are partly a function of affluence. And affluence brings great things too. You know? So the, the point is you, you cannot actually have it all. That's, that's, that, that's the point. But you have to be cognizant of what you are giving up and getting for whatever level, whatever kind of life and society that you're in. You find it interesting how hard it is, though, for most people to make a different choice. So the kibbutz movement's dying out. It's yeah. not growing in appeal as people become more isolated. I rode in on the metro this morning. Everyone's looking at their phone. No one's yeah. making eye contact. God forbid. <laughs> it's frightening if somebody makes eye contact with you. People aren't moving back to small towns. They're staying in them somewhat because rents are high in cities that don't allow more yeah. building to take place. But I find it fascinating that, um, uh, you know, how are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris is the modern yeah. dilemma. People, with a few exceptions, the Amish, which you mentioned in your book, being an exception, most people find the seductiveness of that isolated, more lonely life very appealing. Yeah, it, it, um, I mean, I think it's possible to have a collective life in an urban setting. I mean, there's an r- urban-rural split, which is different from a community isolation split. And um, so my, I've, um, my first marriage, uh, which ended a few years ago, um, my wife, Daniela, was from uh, Bulgaria, and she grew up under communism. Um, 
and the wall fell when she was 17, I think, something like that. And, you know, she, li- you know, she lived in a communist apartment block outside of Sofia. Um, I mean, in some ways, the most sort of like impersonal, um, modern, ghastly environment, except that it was socially very close. So all the families knew each other, the, all the doors were open, the kids could run in and out of different people's apartments, they... Um, Multiple multiple generations living in one or two rooms in an apartment. I mean, really close collective living. It had its stresses, but it also was an incredibly rich and comforting and secure way for a child to grow up. There's always an adult adult around. Um, there's always people to play with, and there's 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 an incredible sense of of, of community. And children really thrive on that. Well, let's turn to that. It reminds me of a friend of mine who uh, they. Uh, a family of four had a two-bedroom apartment. Uh, the parents had one room and the two boys shared the other room. And they would go out to the suburbs to visit uh, their friends and they would come back. The boys were, I think, about eight or nine years, ten years old at that point, And they would say they felt sorry for the people out in the suburbs. Yeah. Why? Well, the, the kids have to sleep by themselves. Yeah. And your book um, – you mentioned that in passing to some extent, but it's more than just in passing that uh, we raise children in a way that's – in the West, that's very different from our our evolutionary heritage. Yeah, I mean, you take a baby chimpanzee um, and put it in a cage by itself without its mother, and it will go crazy pretty quickly. I mean, it, it, it will develop obsessive, very, very anguished behaviors um, really, really quickly. I mean, in, in, the young are vulnerable. They're vulnerable to predators, and they, they instinctively know that. And so a young child, I mean, this is how I grew up, and a young child is put in a room in the dark by itself at night, it knows it's, it's going to get eaten, right? It doesn't know that it's not in the jungle. It, it has no idea that it's in a suburb, right? It, 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 the child's a year old or whatever, and all of its wiring is telling it, like, scream till help comes because you're really vulnerable right now. Um, what I tell people is that you really should – you should act with your children in terms of sleeping arrangements and closeness and proximity and all that. Act with your children at home as, as you would if you were camping in the wilderness. Like if you were camping in the wilderness, you wouldn't put your child in another tent, yeah, right? 30 feet you, away. Right. No, yeah. the child would be with you in the tent. If you tried to put the kid in another tent, it would be unhappy. And, and you guys wouldn't get any sleep either because you'd be worried, right? And just the fact that you live in a safe, a physically safe environment doesn't mean it's emotionally safe and doesn't mean that 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 separation is um, evol- in, in evolutionary terms that it's sound, psych- is psychologically sound. Uh, so people generally sleep in groups. The bigger the group you sl- you're with, the safer you are. I mean, I've you know I've gone I've gone camping in the wilderness alone. You don't sleep very well. It's not fun. It's not <laughs> fun. Every crack of every twig, yeah. you wake up. I sleep great. In the middle of a platoon in combat on a on a combat operation, I'm, no problem, right? I'm I've got th- thirty well armed guys around me, like no problem. The physical threat is is way less disturbing. The real physical threat is way less disturbing in a group than the imaginary threat is disturbing when you're by yourself in the mountains of New Hampshire. So there's a lot of um, advice you get as a parent when you're um, when you have your first kid. And then when you continue to have kids, people still gave you advice and sleeping is a big issue yeah. for most parents, how to deal with it. And uh, There's not a lot of good scientific evidence on it. There's not a lot of good random 
randomized control trials, people run their own. Right. And they're, of course, flawed by what the kid ate that night and whether there's lightning or whatever. But uh, I thought that the most interesting casual piece of evidence that you provide in the book, and I'd never thought about it before, is infants and children's attachment to um, a stuffed animal, which I was I never really thought about. It's like, oh, yeah, they uh, like stuffed animals. I like animals. Right. Oh, what's, what's weird about that? That's, well, they like animals. Uh, it's Maybe it's telling us something. Yeah, I mean, Anglo, Northern European, English English society um, is really the only society in the world that puts children, shush children in dark rooms by themselves to try to go to sleep. Uh, and that started pretty recently, uh, a couple hundred years ago. Um, the, 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 this isn't in my book, but I heard, I heard this since my book came out. Yeah, it was the gin epidemic in London in the 1700s. Um, where people were going to bed drunk and sort of rolling onto their children and crushing them. Um, they got doctors to say, listen, you should put the kid in a cradle. You should put the kid in another room uh, to keep them safe. Cause they did, the doctors didn't think they could get people to stop drinking. And so, so the, the truth is if you're not overweight, if you're not on sleeping pills, if you're not drunk, if you don't smoke cigarettes, if you're clear minded and healthy, you will not crush your child in bed. Right. Um, if you did, it would. It, it, it's a wonder that we would have. We would that we as a human, the human species would have survived, right? Like, I mean, here we are. Clearly, um, co-sleeping couldn't have been a mortal threat to the young. And the there's a wonderful website um, called Evolutionary Parenting um, that talks about our evolutionary origins and how to incorporate norms that have been around for hundreds of thousands of years in terms of, of parenting. How to incorporate those norms in a healthy way into a modern society where, of course whatever we have to we have to we have to deal with the, the the world we live in and it's an amazing it's an amazing website and they talk a lot about co-sleeping and all that stuff well let's let's um come to what seems to be a radically different topic and yet you tie them together in the book um <clears throat> which is um PTSD post traumatic stress syndrome the horror that people can go through after a crisis after, certainly after war and um I just I just read a fascinating book called uh, I think it's called D Day Through German Eyes and it's, oh wow it's a set of first person accounts of uh, the landings on D Day from the German side which nobody pays any attention to because they lost for starters German soldiers don't have a lot of emotional uh, sympathy in the world uh, in the last sixty years but there are a set of really beautifully interesting coincidences. These interviews got done in the 50s, 10 years after D-Day, by a journalist who had interviewed them in 1944, right before D-Day. Wow. So 10 years later, this man comes back. And I have to say, I have a little bit of skepticism about it because their accounts are so poetic and powerful. <laughs> I just, I wonder how. You want to hear the tapes, I'm, right? Yeah, I'd like to hear the tape. <laughs> put that to the side. Uh, it, it is any any account of war has in the modern era and in the past as a matter has horrific accounts of of things that human beings can do to each other with with weapons of of death and this is particularly powerful because it's extremely um vivid it's detailed and graphic and it's not from the people that you're sympathetic to and it's still unbearable yeah. a lot of these were uh, I, I'm just going to mention in passing because we're on the topic, but it, it's, it ties into the episode we did with Yoram Mazzoni about uh, nationalism versus a more universal approach. 
one of the stranger parts of this, these accounts is that many of the soldiers were surprised that the Allies were angry at them and fought with such ferocity because they saw themselves, they've been propagandized so effectively to believe they were defending Europe and that they were part of something good. <laughs> they right. didn't see the films that we saw. They didn't. Right. And in fact, they talk about un, unimaginable thing. They, of all places, some of the prisoners get sent to Idaho. And they're talking about how incredibly well-treated they are and how good the food is and how guilty they feel because they know people back in Berlin, their relatives right. are eating rats. And he said it was great until they showed the films. And they said – the interviewer says, what films? Uh, the Liberation of Auschwitz. And when when they saw yeah. what was going on in the concentration camps, first of all, he said all the American guards stopped talking to them. They wouldn't – they wouldn't. They just wouldn't talk. They were yeah. cruel. They just yeah. stopped talking to them, stopped being friendly and treating them normally. And they had an inner debate about whether they were propagandized or they were effectively photoshopped because they were so horrific. And wow. a couple of them, you know, said, no, the SS, that's, that's really, oh, you know, imagine. so that's really powerful. And you think, okay, if you'd observe, if you'd lived through that on either side and you can watch, you know, for a poor man's version, you can watch the first five minutes of saving private Ryan and yeah. get the most trivial flavor of what this is about. And you could argue, you can understand that would, be very dark, horrible. You can understand why uh, survivors of, of concentration camps and, and, and Auschwitz and, and of the Gulag in the Soviet Union never talk about it yeah. because they can't. They, you know, it's a classic thing in, in, in Jewish circles that, that children of Holocaust survivors never hear yeah. one thing about yeah. what they went through. So we all understand that. And yet your book, sorry for the long introduction, your yeah. book gives a very different take on why – uh, someone coming back from a, a horrible experience like that struggles to reintegrate into normal life. So talk about that. Yeah, well, for, I mean, first of all, understand that our evolutionary past must have been filled with trauma and horror for for individuals. And if trauma was, um, was com psychologically incapacitating for a majority of people for most of their lives, the human race would have died out. Right, you need someone around. After the lion attacks the camp, someone's going to have to go hunting the next day, and if they, and if they're in bed with PTSD, everyone's going to starve. Right, so so clearly, as a species, we are wired to adapt to trauma pretty quickly to recover from it pretty quickly. Um, trauma usually happens to groups of people. Um, I mean, throughout human history, it's because people live in groups. So when trauma happens, it's often to a group. But then recovery from trauma also happens in that same group. And what it, seem, what it seems to be, like if you take a rat and if you traumatize it by exposing it to a cat in, in a cage and you save it before it's killed, you take that rat and you put it into a cage by itself, the trauma reaction that it has will never go away. If you take, that, if you take a rat and expose it to a cat and save it before it's killed and put it into a cage with other rats, within a week the behavior of the traumatized rat is indistinguishable from the other rats. So I think what's happening in modern society is that people are going to war in a group, right? Uh, they're getting traumatized in a group. And keep in mind, only about 10% of the U.S. military is exposed to combat. Uh, so but we're, we're, talk, we're talking about that 10%. They're exposed to trauma in a group. And then they come back, and um, all of a sudden they're dispersed to their communities, which often are um, not very cohesive and it, they're filled with people that didn't experience combat. And, you know, the Auschwitz survivors don't talk about Auschwitz. They talk about it with other people who were in Auschwitz. 
right? So soldiers are coming back to a group of people they didn't go through what they went through. So of course they're not going to talk about it. And the thing is, you know, I get this too. Like I've, you know, I've lost some very, very close friends who I was in war with. And um, I don't like to talk about war because you talk about it for more than three minutes, you end up talking about people you love who died. And then, and no one likes to cry in public. And that's what, that's what happens if you have a real conversation about war. So they avoid it except when they're with each other. And uh, my, my, the woman I'm married to right now um, is the youngest of 12. And her father uh, was 55 when she was born. And he fought his way through the entire, all of World War II from um, uh, North Africa, Sicily, Italy, D-Day on the south coast of France, um, most of it on foot. He was combat infantry lieutenant and a captain. Uh, wrote uh, just a ghastly number of letters to parents. I mean, I mean, that, that was probably the most traumatic thing for him in the war was writing those letters. You know, man, young men under his About command. Uh, yeah, kids. Uh, kids who were killed. Yeah. Yeah, um, you know, young men under his command. He was in his late 20s. They, you know, the boys he was commanding were 17. And he would have to write their parents. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine. And he lost his entire platoon, you know, over and over again because they just kept getting chewed up. And they'd replace him with new guys and those guys would get killed and on they went. And and we ran out of, basically the Germans ran out of tanks and men before we did. Yeah. That's why we won the war. At any rate, he was the whole damn thing right into Austria. And he came back uh, to Wisconsin, to Kenosha, Wisconsin. And all of his six brothers had all also served. And they all lived within a few blocks of him. And I'm sure every man in that neighborhood had served. And even the people that didn't serve, the families, um, they all, there were enormous sacrifices that were made by the public during that terrible time. And, you know, of course he was radically altered by those experiences, but he wasn't incapacitated, right? He came back, he was the mayor of Kenosha and he ran a bank, you know, and I think he, in terms of honor and all that stuff, like, I think he, I don't know, I didn't, you know, he passed away before, I mean, I had never had a chance to meet him, but I'm guessing that he saw his service to the community as the mayor and as the, and running the small community back, just as, he saw that as just as important as his service overseas fighting the Germans. I'm, I'm guessing that in terms of sort of honor and dignity and service to the country, he didn't draw a huge, they're very different activities, but in terms of what the nation needs, uh, thank you for your service. I mean, we should be thanking school teachers for their service in some ways, you know, I mean, well, we should be thanking everybody. I mean, it takes everybody to run this yeah. thing, you know? <laughs> so I'm all for saying thank you for your service. But what I would say is let's understand that it's not just soldiers. It's an awful lot of good people who are working very, very hard to keep this thing going. Yeah, you, you talk a number of times in the book about that phrase, thank you for your service, which has a, um, supposed to be, add, it's supposed to have dignity, I think, to the status of a veteran. And in some ways, it's unbelievably condescending. Um, I say it a lot. Um, I say it when I see soldiers. I say it when I see policemen, policewomen. I, I I, but it's um, it's cheap talk uh, to a large extent for obvious reasons, and I I think what I want to focus on though in this conversation about returning veterans is the sort of two things it seems to me. One is the society you return to as a say an American is individual, somewhat isolated, depending on your choices, but can be very isolated and lonely. And it's the way I would describe it is um, potentially emotionally thin. Uh, it must 
a part of what we're talking about is missing that camaraderie, the combination of doing something with people for a cause, a cause that's higher, something that's higher than yourself, and depending on others, the way you talked about mm-hmm. earlier about about the need to be needed, uh, and the vividness of of everyday life, and to come from that, even if you didn't have to endure horrible trauma, to come from that to the comfortable life that yeah. most of us get to enjoy, which I really love my life, uh, it must be very powerfully difficult. Yeah, I mean, one of the things um, about combat is that even the smallest details can have catastrophically large meanings. So, you know, if you tie your shoelaces or not, it's not really a big deal in society. Um if you trip on your shoelaces in combat, you, you, you might get killed, or the guy next to you might get killed. And so, at night, so for example, at night, often the attacks would come early in the morning. And so, you you know, we were up on this rocky hilltop, and if we got overrun, you didn't want to be running down the hill in your bare feet. It was pretty rugged terrain, but you also didn't want to be trying to tie and untie your shoes for five minutes during a, a you know a dawn attack on the outpost, right? So, what I did, and I think a lot of other guys did this too, is that you would tie your boots, but super loose. So that the laces weren't trailing on the ground, but you could dive your feet into them in in a moment, right? And be up and running. Even if you're in your underwear, you could be up and running in seconds. That's just your shoelaces, right? And every single thing, every article that, that you own, everything you do in combat potentially can make a difference in whether you survive or not. And that gives existence and the things of existence, they literal, literally the physical world around you. It gives it an, an almost sacred glow, right? Because it all has to do with your survival. And and it, ge- and it gives you a, I would say, an almost a kind of Zen appreciation for the, the, the moment by moment, the circumstances of your existence. The and, mundane isn't mundane anymore. Yeah, it, it, exactly. Nothing's mundane. Right, so the so these these supposedly trivial objects suddenly are sort of glowing with importance. Everything you do, you think about and examine, ideally, and your connections to other people are your ticket to survival. And to be connected to other people, you have to act well, too, right? You can't be selfish, cowardly, and a son of a bitch, right? You'll get kicked. I mean, you, you whatever. Like, it, it, you will not be part of the platoon, <laughs> right? So um, th- those sort of norms of like, all right, we're up against it. Everyone better act well. We all need each other. That, um, it's a very ancient human adaptation, and when people go through it, it makes them feel very, very good, and they really miss it when they have to give it up. And so people experience, soldiers experience coming back as this, all of a sudden they have this great sort of plentitude of material uh, possessions, and um, and they're safe, and all these supposedly nice things, but it, there's a great um, poverty of human connection. And that's the thing that actually makes determines whether people feel good or not. And that's the thing that they give up. And there's a there's a wonderful movie called The Best Years of Our Lives about veterans returning from World War II. Frederick March, I think. Yeah, amazing, amazing. And and so they you know they land at the these guys get to know each other in the in the transport plane and they land at the airfield and they decide before they disperse to their homes. They're going to get a taxi. They're going to share a taxi, and they're on the way. Of course, they pass a bar. They're like, hey, let's just stop and have a drink. right? They have a drink. They immediately get into a bar fight. They get back. <laughs> so their families don't know they're coming, right? There's no Facebook. There's no cell phones. There's nothing. Like These guys would come home unannounced and come, come walking up their street, right? Which probably was interesting sometimes and, and complicated, but that's how it worked. And so 
So then they drop one guy off, and then they get to the second guy, and they pull up in front of his house, and he doesn't want to get out of the car. And he goes, can we just have one more drink? And his buddies are like, listen, your family's in there. They, they don't know. They don't even know you're in the country. Like, you have to go home. You have to go home and start your life. And he takes a deep breath, grabs his bag, takes a deep breath, and says, I feel like I'm about to hit a beach. I feel like I'm about to land under machine gun fire to take out an enemy position. That's what going home felt like to that guy. So this is not a modern problem. Yeah. I would say it goes back thousands and thousands of years. You talk very poetically in the book about um, how people adapt to those crisis environments uh, despite their challenges. Uh, during the Blitz in London, during the bombing of civilians in the city of London, the, the, the British government was afraid that people were going to go get hysterical if they were bombed every night. Very reasonable thought, it seems to me. Uh, and yet, as you point out, people very quickly adapted to spending evenings in the in the tube, in yep. the, the subway uh, subways of, of London and, and makeshift bomb shelters and other things. And people died every day. Yeah. But yeah. Not, not in the numbers that people thought, but people died every day. Yeah, I mean, they lost 30,000 civilians. And, and uh, you know, 9-11 times 10, right? And over the course of six months. And, uh, um, yeah, the government was worried about mass psychiatric casualties. and But on the contrary, admissions to psych wards went down during the Blitz and then back up when the Blitz stopped, right? Um, what it seems to be is that you if you give people an urgent task, it gives them the opportunity to stop thinking about themselves. <laughs> and when you do that, you cut short this sort of awful feedback loop of something that's called anxious rumination. If you give people enough troubled people, I mean, people have things on their mind, right? If you give them enough space to think too much, they think themselves into a circle and they get more and more anxious and depressed. And so what a crisis does is pops them back into the present moment that, again, that sort of Zen idea, like you're in the present moment right now, be here right now. It, It pops them back into that and they can forget about their personal troubles. And you know, one one one, one British official said in amazement, uh, "We have the chronic neurotics of peacetime driving ambulances." That's what happens. Yeah, uh, it's a wonderful book uh, called "My Brother's Keeper," which is about American pilots who went to the uh, who went to Israel to fly the early planes of the Israeli Air Force in 1948 which were horrific, horrible, horrible planes. I think they they got them from like Romania or Romania. I can't remember <laughs> oh right now. God. They were literally dangerous, the planes, and and they were primitive, and they didn't work well, and they didn't have supplies. And and these were people who had just been in war wow. three years before. And I, when I was reading the book, and I've, there's a uh, really nice uh, documentary made about the these soldiers um, by Nancy Spielberg, um, books written by Jeff Weiss and his brother, I think it's Craig. But the... And we'd interview and say, why'd you do this? Now they're 60, 70, 80-year-old yeah. men, and their answer is, you know, they say things like, well, I have Jewish identity, I want to do something <laughs> for the Jewish people. But part of it was they missed it. They, they missed the risking their lives. It's just hard yeah. for us to understand it. There's, a great, there's yeah. a great author, a um, veteran, combat veteran, Marine veteran um, named Elliot Ackerman, um, and he, he's coming out with a book in a few months that I just read um, – and he he what he he goes back to yeah you know, he was in Iraq and Afghanistan and then he got out of the service and now and so then there's a civil war in Syria and he goes back not to fight it but to cover it as yeah. a journalist journalists have this challenge yeah. too yeah they? and he so he said he described the war in the Middle East as 
he described going back there and his interest in the Syrian civil war. He see, described it as the interest one has in, a, in an ex-girlfriend that dumped you. And like, wow, well, how's she doing now? Like, I want to just check up and see, does she have a new boyfriend? Like, what's going on with her? Right. That was him going back to Syria or to southern Turkey, actually, to just sniff around and see what it felt like again. And we did an episode with Paul Robinson on the norms that emerge in these types of stressful situations. And, you know, economists, I think, are prone to talk about the self-interested part and at the urge to, say, get a disproportionate share of a limited amount of food in a crisis. Um, That gets punished very quickly. And you talk in the book about how they didn't need the police to take care of people in these – during the Blitz. They didn't – they don't need – a handbook. People very quickly yeah. figure out what's right and wrong, and and the group enforces it very quickly. Yeah, I mean, serving yourself at the expense of of the group is a mortal sin, and 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 and, and in in human society, I think it was probably quite often punished with death. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, you're hoarding drinking water and 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 crackers on the life raft while everyone's dying. Like, you're probably going to go overboard, yeah. right? No one needs someone like that, and it's really interesting because these. You know, these human norms aren't called upon very often in modern society because technology and the Industrial Revolution has solved a lot of those immediate survival problems. But once in a while, there's a crisis. And and even when there isn't a crisis, Hollywood, I mean, one of the things we do is we love to watch movies about communities where people are, communities that are facing a crisis, and we want to see this story told over and over again of people, act, ordinary people acting well in a crisis. We, we love that story. It's like a bedtime story for adults, right? Yeah. And I did some, re- it's not in the book, but I did some research about this because I felt that Hollywood movies are maybe our version of, um, of folklore, yes. of, of, of tribal myths, right? That's what, it's what we have uh, for, as, as a mythology. And so I thought, okay, let's look at what, ha- what the, the, the roles in a disaster movie whether it's the Martians invading or an earthquake or whatever, whatever it is, whatever Hollywood cooks up, what, what are the roles that people take on in these films? Because I felt like the scripted roles would actually reflect cultural values. Yeah. And so I, I found a, a company that does like market research and they, they show films and get people to respond to films and they tailor the ending, you know, whatever it's Hollywood business. But so I talked to them about these sort of classic roles in these films and you know, of course, they will advise the studios to change characters or change endings depending on what people want. Well, what people want is, and this is going to be very un-PC, but this is what the audiences say they want. They want a, if there's a physical threat to be countered, they want a man to do that, right? A trustworthy, upright, good, courageous man. Jimmy they, Stewart. Right. No, Tom, right. Tom Hanks. Right. They want a woman associated with him who is sort of dealing with the group, Right? They're not literally with a machine gun facing down, whatever, but they're dealing with the group dynamics, which is intending to the wounded, which is equally important. Right, So we're, there's no hierarchy of importance here. But one very common character in this is the selfish guy. It's right. always a guy. That's the third of deers, yeah. That's, that's the right. master of the house. And they <laughs> always end up falling into the pit of lava or getting eaten by the saber-toothed tiger or, you know, whatever. whatever. Like, <laughs> that guy, the guy who puts himself before the community always Dies, and then there's a fourth. This is it. There's a final fourth character. It's very common. It, it's the it's the husband who didn't act well. Is on the outs with his wife, wife and kids, 
and he's been cast out for bad behavior. And then the crisis comes and he comes home and saves the family and saves the day and she takes him back. And that's like an (laughs) eternal human story that we all love to hear told. Star Wars. It's Harrison Ford in the first Star Wars. That's, right. You know, the selfish guy who doesn't do his duty, doesn't, right. is irresponsible, but he comes back. But he comes he does, back. He does the right thing. That's right. Um, so let's try to put this in a bigger perspective and think about some of the issues that we've been talking about on this program of modernity, the Enlightenment, progress. You know, we had John Gray on here talking about how there isn't any progress we have material progress, but socially we're struggling. This, your book really is, when he says struggling, it's the nature of human beings. Uh, he would argue that we made no progress on those fronts. And you're suggesting, actually, we're kind of maybe falling behind a little bit. I want to read a rather um, really beautiful summary of the way I've started to think about these issues, and for better or for worse, um, having been a tremendous optimist through most of my early economics <laughs> career. And now it's a combination of, Life, age, 2018, I don't know, reading too many of the wrong books. But anyway, here's what you say. Uh, There's no use arguing that modern society isn't a kind of paradise. The vast majority of us don't personally have to grow or kill our own food, build our own dwellings, or defend ourselves from wild animals and enemies. In one day, we can travel a 1,000 miles by pushing our foot down on a gas pedal or around the world by booking a seat on an airplane. When we are in pain, we have narcotics that dull it out of existence we are depressed, we have pills that change the chemistry of our brains. We understand an enormous amount about the universe, from subatomic particles to our own bodies to galaxy clusters, and we use that knowledge to make life even better and easier for ourselves. The poorest people in modern society enjoy a level of physical comfort that was unimaginable a thousand years ago, and the wealthiest people literally live the way gods were imagined to have. And yet, end of quote, and that and yet really just, Blew me away because that's the way I've started to think about things. So we've got, I think, as listeners know, I think it's totally misunderstood what's happened to the standard of living of the average person in America over the last 50 years. Uh, I think it's gotten a lot better. Recently had an essay on that on, on Medium. It's not just the, and I'll put a link to it, it's not just the rich, it's the average person and the poor people. I think life is just better for almost everybody, not everybody, but almost everybody. And yet, and I, I think what your book reminds us is that. Meaning doesn't come from stuff, which we all know. I mean, that's it's a cliche of cliches. We know that. And yet we strive for stuff and we overstrive for stuff. Uh, we spend too much time on stuff. And um, you don't talk about this, but I think one way to think about your book is we want to be in a tribe. Um, we need to be in a tribe. And I think there's a temptation in modern political discourse to, to decry tribalism. I have. But – uh, it's naive to think, well, we'll just need to get people to stop feeling that way because it's unhealthy. It's who we are, yeah. and it's where we get to a large extent our sense of meaning, and it's certainly where we get our – sometimes we get our sense of meaning from hating people who aren't in our tribe. And that's just extremely unhealthy to pretend that that's uh, just something we're going to, uh, I don't know, uh, change face. We just need to get regulate Facebook, so this tribalism thing. We get, We have some serious issues, and I think – I don't know if thinking about it, talking about it helps, but we have some serious issues. Yeah, I mean, I think technology and mass communication have made connection and division easier. I mean, it just, you know, you can post something on Facebook and you're reaching thousands of people instantaneously. That's new in human history. I mean, I, I, I mean, till, until recently, the number of people you could persuade 
to your viewpoint, was limited to the number of people who could hear you when you were shouting. Yeah. Right? And those would be the people within your immediate community that you grew up with, some of whom you're related to, who you share a, an, a, an inherent interest with of, of survival and that you identify with, and, and there's them, and then there's outsiders, and it's all very, very simple. But with a modern connected world, living in a nation of 340 million, is it something like that? You know, th that's an experiment that's never been tried before. And so when you say that there's the tribalism is hurting America, and I agree, um, the problem, I mean, yes and no, the problem is how you define the tribe. If we're going to bother living in a nation of 200, 340 million, we have to just define our tribe as that nation. Because we're not going to get rid of the tribal impulse. It served us well. It's allowed us to survive. It's not going anywhere. It has uh, arguably distasteful or even toxic outcomes. It also has incredibly admirable and moving and generous outcomes in equal measure. It's not going anywhere. So if we're going to be tribal, we need to think of this nation as our tribe, or we should just stop this crazy experiment. It's been great, but we should get out and, and divide up into the groups that we consider our, our tribe, whatever that may be. I, I, I think that's a horrible, sad idea. And I think we can do it. But one of the things that has to happen is that we have an expectation. That, I mean, there's free speech in this country. It's, a, it's a, one of our most precious liberties. You cannot take that away. But that doesn't mean that speech can't be censured, that it can't be criticized and condemned. And um, when you, when we have people who are incredibly powerful people, people who are, we have given control of our very lives and society to, we have said, take care of this, this problem. We, society needs to be run by somebody. You're, you've been chosen to do it. Take care of us. When you give people that kind of power, it should not come with license to say whatever you want about other people in the tribe. And when politicians and media leaders talk about other Americans, the, um, demographic groups, political rivals, whatever it may be, not with criticism. Criticism's great, right? Dislike, no problem. You don't have to like anybody. I don't care. But when you talk about those people with disgust and contempt, what you're really doing is you're, you're communicating, you know what, not only do I disagree with this person, they shouldn't even be in the group. Like, they shouldn't even, they shouldn't even be in the country. And when you're doing that, I mean, for example, when um, candidate Trump talked about Barack Obama as having as not being a U.S. citizen, you know, I mean, just think about that. We're a country at war. We have hundreds of thousands of soldiers overseas, or tens of thousands of soldiers overseas, and someone is telling these guys and young women that their commander in chief actually is a foreign agent who's not an American citizen. I mean, what the hell, right? He's free to do that because we have this wonderful, wonderful thing called free speech. But the Republican Party is not free to stay silent. The Republican Party, if you, if you, if you sort of think in terms of national security, really must step forward and say, we do not espouse that notion. President Obama is, our, is an American citizen and we respect, et cetera, et cetera. And, and likewise with the Democrats, you know, the, the Democrats have their own sins too. And so my problem isn't so much with that kind of speech. It's that the political institutions remain silent while things like that are said. And that is a threat to our national security. Yeah, you said it really well in the book. You said basically, um, and I, I certainly see it on both sides, President Trump's a flamboyant figure, but of course you know, Hillary called 
Of course. Republicans, deplorable. Yeah. It's just not yeah. a word you should use for your political. Right. There's, the, there's the contempt. Yeah, that's, that's the contempt. The, that's the contempt. Right, and, right. And it's a, it's a high standard in everyday life where life is, we're judgmental human creatures, and, <laughs> but we, we should demand a better standard of our elected officials and our journalists as well. And I, one of the things that disturbs me about journalism today is that journalists have just given up any pretense yeah. of, of objectivity and indulge in that precise yeah. emotion, contempt. Uh, and that's just, it's, um, it's, it's not healthy, but you point out in the book, it's like what you're really accusing people of frequently in those, in those settings is treason. Not, yeah. not, I don't like your public policy. I don't think it's good for America, but right. you're bad for the country. Right. That's not crazy. only not only bad for the country, you actually are are intending to harm the country. Correct. That's the, that's your point. That's right. your point. I found that it just I never thought of it that way, and it's exactly what's bad. I think one of the things that's really unhealthy about our there's a lot of things unhealthy about our political discourse, but the idea that that you're trying to harm that you're deliberately not well, I don't, your policy wouldn't work out, I don't think, but rather oh you're deliberately trying to harm the country. Yeah, I mean every every society. And we are no exception. Every society has to, first and foremost, take care of two two things. It has to physically de- defend itself from enemies, if there are any. And it has to keep itself together. It has to remain cohesive. If it doesn't remain cohesive, there's nothing to defend. And if there's no defense, no amount of cohesion in the world will save you from an enemy. So you have to do both things. And, and if you don't, nothing else is really worth doing. And the United States is militarily so powerful that I would argue the only threat to what we sometimes call our freedom, right? I, I mean, in fact, I don't think American soldiers are defending our freedom. They're defending some other very important things. Freedom is something that we gave ourselves. That's not something that can be taken away. It's a political—freedom is a political contract. Al-Qaeda cannot destroy our freedom because it's self-given, only we can do that. And the only way we can do that is through words. No one's going to come shooting their way into America and take our freedom away, take our political process away, our liberty, our democracy away. No one's going to do that. It's not possible to do it with bullets, but it's very easy to do with words. And in that sense, I feel that that kind of awful rhetoric, which, as you say, both sides indulge in, is actually a far greater security threat to this country than al-Qaeda and ISIS and all those other people. So a related issue, which doesn't seem related, but I think it is, and it's strange that I think right before I read your book, I wrote an essay about rampage killing and and um, shooting sprees that seem to be on the rise um, in America. And um, you wrote, uh, it may be worth considering whether middle-class American life for all its material good fortune has lost something, some essential sense of unity – that would otherwise discourage alienated men from turning apocalyptically violent. Close quote. My essay was called The Lonely Man with a Gun. It's a man. It's almost always a man. Yeah. And it's a lonely man after after the, you know, they go to interview the neighbors. Oh, yeah, he kept to himself. And right. so it's a person who's been disconnected. There's always been people who've been disconnected. Uh, there have always been people with guns. The idea of training a gun on a bunch of strangers and killing yeah. them for, I think, for notoriety, yeah. for a feeling that you matter, right? Uh, listeners know I love this quote from Adam Smith. Um, Man naturally desires not only to be loved but to be lovely. We we want to by that he meant we need to matter to other people. If we don't, 
we're going to find a way to, to achieve it. And the, you know, I'd love it if we didn't cover these tragedies um, and didn't name the, the names of the people who did these things. That's not going to happen in a free society. Right. So I think we've got to think about why these happen and what needs to change it or, or just accept it because it's, I think it's, it's part and parcel of our freedom that we allow people to um, live by themselves. We let people live on the street. We don't, we don't put our noses in other people's lives. That's a great thing. It's also a very not so good thing that we let people be on their own and miserable, lonely. And we say, yeah, it's up to you, your problem. One of the interesting things about the mass shooting phenomenon, I did a sort of limited analysis of it. And um, there's never been a mass shooting. I mean, there's gang shootings, there's all kinds of ghastly stuff, but there's never been a mass shooting, that kind of intentionally nihilistic act where you kill as many people as possible before you kill yourself or get arrested. Uh, there's never been a mass shooting in a high crime urban neighborhood. Um, it, they almost always happen in otherwise safe, low crime Christian neighborhoods. I mean, sort of like traditional American Christian, white Christian, middle class towns uh, that have very little crime. And it's possible. I mean, again, you know, correlation isn't causation, but it's possible if you look at the, the, at the breakdown um, a sudden escalation in mass shootings in the, I think it was the late 80s, and then all of a sudden they tripled in 2006, right around when Facebook hit, um, and social media sort of took over. And and social media, it connects people, it also disconnects people. And I, I think ultimately, what, you know, the net, the net result is we should be calling it anti-social media. I think it's actually terrible for human relations. But regardless, the timing is interesting. But the, the rate of mass killings is, has just kept doubling in the last 20 years. And I would say the, the rate of alienation and loss of community has also done so. Um, but it seems to be a phenomenon of comfort and affluence and, and, uh, and served otherwise safe little towns. I want to challenge the economists out there listening, uh, students and faculty, to think about what economics has to say about this. And I think the answer right now in this discipline is precisely nothing. We have these strange models where people get utility, which is a vague term to mean satisfaction or pleasure or delight or meaning, uh, out of stuff. And um, I think if you're not careful, you might study that and think it's right. It is what people – it's true that people strive for things. They do like them. They, they do take, generally take jobs that pay more than jobs that pay less. But uh, this human connection idea and the need to have uh, social connection, I think, is, um, is the weak spot of economics. Adam Smith was really interested in it. Um, and around 1759, it was a big part of our field, but it seems to have, uh, seems to have gone away. Um, So that's – I'd like to – I hope some people will think about that in, in terms of what people care about. I think it belongs in our utility function, but I don't think necessarily that's the right way to, to deal with it. If I can jump in on yeah. that, I think it's something that might be interesting to people. So in an environment of scarcity, which of course is the environment that we, the human race spent most of its history in, um, that sort of compulsively acquiring, hoarding behavior of resources makes perfect sense. Um, likewise, a taste for sugar, eating as much sweet stuff – as much fat, all those things make perfect sense in an environment where there's not often a lot of food, not often a lot of resources. It makes perfect sense. Like while it's there, consume as much as you can because you don't know when you're going to eat again, right? It's adaptive. The problem with modern society, I think in that sense, 
is that we have these adaptive behaviors that are tuned to a low resource, high, uh, high activity, high intensity environment. We're attuned to that. Meta- our metabolisms, as it were, are, are attuned to that. And now we have a surplus of everything. So we, our wiring will have us continue to acquire and consume and acquire and consume. But what we're not adapted to is a situation where there's infinite resources and we don't know how to stop. And so I just want to say that that sort of like utilitarian principle of get as much stuff as you can, it has great evolutionary roots. Like it got us here, but we'll, but we're not a slave to our, to our, to our, our wiring. Right. I mean, we, we have to understand that's a, that's a trait that had, that was adaptive and useful. And we have to know when it must be overridden or it's actually going to start damaging us. And that's true for material goods, for sort of commercial culture, uh, sort of material world. It's also true for food. And and the um, the end of the day, if that's where your energy is going, it's probably not going towards other people. And we know, psychologists will tell you, it is our connection to others that makes that 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 makes people live longer, have more meaningful happier lives like that is that is what a happy meaningful life is is connection to others the listeners know that i i keep the jewish sabbath which is one way to insulate yourself from over gadgeting and connecting via very sterile i think somewhat sterile uh, modes of connection social media so i take a 25 hour break once a week maybe it should be longer but um i you know we live in a time and religion historically has has played some role yeah. in tamp, tamping down and tempering both the self interested urge and the uh, material, right. the pursuit of material things. And yet we live in a time when religion is, I think, very much on the wane, uh, waning and getting less uh, persuasive to most people. And I think about David Foster Wallace's fabulous quote that everyone worships. You know, he says, "You make." You know, there's no atheism, says David Foster Wallace. This is a, offends atheists, of course, but um, I think what he's saying is is correct. We all worship something. Uh, it may not be God. It may be beauty. It may be art. It may be your looks. It may be money. It may be various forms of um, addiction that that we find ourselves in. And you know, we're sitting here complaining to some extent about the flaws of modern Western society. Uh, no one's in charge of it. Of Western society, it has emerged through the Enlightenment, through our creativity, through free market capitalism, most of which has been, I think, phenomenal in eliminating poverty. And at the same time, we've we've had trouble maintaining our uh, connection to something larger than ourselves traditionally, which was religion. And we've looked for other things. Sports is one of them. You mentioned it earlier. People are into sports in a way that. 50 years ago, people would have said, well, that, that's not healthy. What is That's weird. I mean, sports weren't, weren't a thing, really, in 19, uh, fandom in sports. So it raised the question, you know, what's um, what's next for us? Uh, is it, you know, other than, than observing this, which is fascinating to me, um, is there anything we can do about it? Anything positive we uh, could say? <laughs> I mean, I think to return wholesale modern society to a, a, a more communal um small-scale connected society, you'd have to turn off the internet and ban the car, basically. And and essentially, essentially it would be a natural disaster that wiped out the grid and just and, and the grid stayed wiped out. And eventually we'd blunder our way back to 
a a a more uh, human and connected and and much poorer way of living. And so no one's— Shorter lifespans, uh, <laughs> lots of negatives to being right. poor. I mean, that's right. the challenge here. It's— it's the it's the other side of and yet you know yeah. we we'd feel have a lot of meaning in our life but right. we'd have a lot of suffering yeah right exactly I mean like I said you don't you don't get to have it all no one <laughs> no one gets to have it all but I think what we can do as a modern wealth, wealthy society is understand the dangers of modernity and wealth and work very hard to counteract them so for example I think is I read a story in Japan that older older women the, Japan's pretty hard on the elderly I think and older women were shoplifting so they could be put in prison and have the company of other older women, right? That's the, that's an awful solution to a problem, <laughs> right? But also in Japan, what they started, I think it's Japan, what they started doing is putting um, middle schools and nursery schools next to old, old folks' homes. And that, they, and, the, and that the people in the old folks' homes would go visit the schools and vice versa. And that the sort of cross-pollination, of course, you know, young children, they don't make any distinctions of race or age or anything. It's just like how you treat them. That, and and that's wonderful. And and so that the, this sort of cross-pollination of ener- youthful and o- older energy was great for both groups, right? So I think society is starting to come up with solutions, small-scale solutions that actually work for people. Um, there are now, I think in San Francisco and in New York, there are buildings you can buy into, you can get a bedroom in a building that's basically a huge collective space with a collective kitchen and living areas and your own bedroom, and it's basically, you're basically buying into a concrete village. You know, it's basically a village of 30 or 40 people, which is a typical human group in our evolutionary past. It's a village of 30 or 40 people with common areas, but your own privacy. And so people are starting to act, developers are actually starting to develop buildings, develop projects that, that attend to that basic human need of, 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 of balancing privacy and communality. You, you, you do have to balance them. No one wants to sp- sleep in a barracks for the rest of their lives with a bunch of other people, Right. <laughs> Uh, but you, but having those common spaces where you can interact with people, not just people that you know really well, those are friends, people that you just kind of recognize. Like, hey, how you doing? What's your name again? Oh, yeah, yeah, nice to see you. I mean, that kind of connection. But connection with someone that you know is part of your group, but you don't know them really well, like that, people love that. That's why people go to coffee shops. I mean, everyone can make coffee at home, but they don't. They pay $5 for a coffee at Starbucks. It's partly so that they can be in a little small, brief, small community. Yeah, no, that's... Uh... And one thing we haven't talked about, uh, except very much in passing, is uh, is marriage. Um, it's hard to believe. It's tempting to disbelieve this, but I think it's a true fact um, as opposed to a fake fact. Uh, in 2014, there are fewer households with two earners than in 1980. And that's shocking because – Women's labor force participation has increased dramatically. So you'd think there'd be a lot more households with two people working. It's not a big difference. It's down from 33% to 31. That it's down at all is shocking. The reason it's down is because it's true that married women are much more likely to work than they did before. But there are much fewer marriages. So very few, a lot more single people, people, a lot more divorce, a lot more people not getting married to start with, a lot more people not remarrying. So those village structures and urban life for young people is very different today than it was 30 and 40 years ago when people married at a younger age started. And, you know, marriage is kind of dying as an institution in some – it's not dead, but it's definitely also waning as as religion is which is just another way that we would get human contact, right? Coming home to a spouse 
is another way to feel connected to humanity. Sometimes not a good marriage. So you're not so happy to see the spouse, maybe, but, but there's someone there in your life. Um, and I really, your point about people you, your acquaintances, again, Adam Smith talks a lot about the different ways we interact with intimate friends, somewhat friends, people right. we recognize, strangers. And, and that's all part of a rich social life. Yeah. Um, right. And, and understand that community also includes people you might not even like, but you understand that because you need the community, you need that person. And that's just a fact of life that you may not like the blacksmith. But every village needs a blacksmith, and once in a while, you're going to have to go to him to get your axe fixed, right? And so that experience of community is, is – there's overlap, but it's different from the sort of gradations of friendship. And so what humans, what humans are adapted to <clears throat> is to be part of a community that also includes people they don't particularly like. But we all understand without this community, I'm screwed. And, um, and so it keeps people invest, invested in good – basically – in good pro-social behavior. One of my hopes, one of my sources of optimism is the way that culture and free markets, they give us what we want. Um, and if we want to live with other people and interact with other people, we'll find ways of doing that, whether it's that developer who develops a building that's a little bit different or where we choose to live. And uh, Do you see any examples of that in terms of, um, of cultural norms emerging that recognize the importance of our tribal uh, past that help us connect to other people, that, that are things changing that might be a little source of optimism? I see it all over the place. You know, I mean, I think the whole um, mirage of social media is that if we follow it, it will lead to a sort of blissful community we can all be part of. I think it's a mirage and a lie. But we clearly are at least thought we were pursuing something healthy. Um uh, you know, you see in, adverti- in advertising, you know, I mean, I don't have a TV, but when I see advertising on TV, like, it always groups of people having a good time and being, like, nice with each other and, like, drinking a beer and over around a barbecue. I mean, it's just this constant reenacting of, like, ancient, ancient human behaviors of, of communal life. That, and it is clearly that's, you know, you show that and whatever it is people are drinking or eating while they're having a good communal time, you, people will go buy it because they want, they want to be part of that experience. So I, 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 we see it all the time, and I think we see it because it's so lacking in, subst- in, in a substantive form in our society. So all that it takes, you just have to go the next step and say, oh, this is actually something, I don't need Coca-Cola to give me this. Right, I don't need Facebook to give me this. I can get this right, I, but I just have to know it's something that I want, and I have to deliberately set out to to, to try to create it, to try to make it happen. Um, we're not going to completely restructure modern society back to some sort of small scale tribal norm. It's not happening. You, we'd have to give up too much stuff, too much good stuff. Um, but I think within our society, if we're at least aware of, of what's, what's painting us, of what we're missing, what we're lacking, what we're longing for, at least understand it, bring it to our conscious mind, we can seize on these opportunities where the, uh, where the chance presents itself to act like that, to experience that, and hold on to it. 
and develop it. And I think if we if we do that, I think it will lead, like these developers with these buildings, like the genius in Japan who's putting the nursery school next to the old folks. I mean, these things will happen. And I, as they become norms in our, our society, our society will change incrementally. I, I really think that not only can it happen, I think it it must happen because clearly our society is in an enormous amount of pain. If you look at the addiction rates and murder rates and suicide rates and every, mental health, I mean, every, if you just look at that list, we are in agony as a society. And um, we need to save ourselves. And we're only going to do that by connecting to each other. My guest today has been Sebastian Junger. His book is Tribe. Sebastian, thanks for being part of EconTalk. My pleasure. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.